Hey, this is Thinking and Drinking. I'm your host, Bart Almond. Over the last 30 years or so, I've worked for major record companies, working with major artists such as Alabama, the Dixie Chicks, and Florida Georgia Line. I've also been writing songs for the past 15 years, have over 50 cuts, two number ones, and made a lot of friends along the way. I'm going to be talking to some of those friends about songs, life on the road, and just life in general. I hope you have as much fun as I will. Hey, it's Bartier here. I wanted to say thanks again for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to subscribe. Give us five stars and a nice review because it really helps. Today we have my friend Terry McBride. Before I get to that intro, I wanted to give a quick shout out to our new sponsor, Cathead Vodka. They're based in Jackson, Mississippi. We love them because of their vodka, but also for their heart for and support of live musicians. Check them out at catheaddistillery.com. And now, T-Mac, Brother Mac Bride. What can I say about Terry that he hasn't already said about himself? (laughs) One of the best voices country music's ever heard, unbelievable songwriter, and just one of the most musical cats I've ever been privileged to call my friend. Here's Terry McBride. Terry McBride, how are you, man? Brother Holland, look at you. Dude, we're both here and dressed in long pants and hard-soled <laughs> shoes like the old days. That's right. This is my go-to. Old like boots it. and uh, never go out of style. And a chrome Christmas tree. And a chrome Christmas tree. You know, that's one of those vintage uh, tinfoil trees. It's on, it? a, it's on an old-timey oh, carousel, it too. It's supposed to spin around, that. but it's so old it just lights up. See, it shines the lights up through it. I like the lights. Yeah, it's like one of those... Well, let's throw back Christmas in here. Well, man, you were born in Lampasas, Texas, or born and raised. Correct. 70 miles northwest of Austin. Is That's that about right. right? Right, sort of the gateway of the hill country. So did you guys, I mean, I know your your pop, Dale McBride, had singles in the 70s and stuff. Right. And right. Did you go in and out of Austin just all the time, oh, being that close? All the time. Yeah. I mean, I got my license early. As a freshman in high school, my parents had split, and my grandparents were kind of raising me. My dad was on the road. He was a touring, traveling, yeah. singing, songwriting a guy. That's what he was doing. Uh, so uh, he was really having a little bit of a spike and a, some popularity in the 70s while I was in high school, as a matter of fact. So he'd signed with a little indie label up here in Nashville and was having some chart success, That's country killer. songs. And uh, so anyway... Uh, uh, yeah, I grew up in the Lamp Passes, just a little a little over an hour from Austin. Yeah. So down the road, man, in the 70s, the progressive country scene was like on fire. Oh, dude. Willie Nelson was my hero. I mean, he lived down the road. It was mind-boggling. So we went every chance we could get, you know. With, and I was playing all through high school, too. So I did lots of, I was in a really cool band my freshman year with some older guys, like seniors in high school. That right. Older, you know, they seemed so much older at the yes. time. One was in college that was like, damn, he's almost too old right. to be in the band. <laughs> we might want to get rid of him, man. He doesn't have the look that we're anymore. But yeah, you know, you're on your teenage. Yeah. It's like, you know, a 20 something year old guy's like, oh, he's going to spoil the party, man. Dude. We got to get rid of the old dude, you know? <laughs> so, when you say you were, you were playing everything, like, I believe on terrymcbridemusic.com. Yes, that's me. It, it says your dad gave you a guitar when you were nine. Is that that's about right. right? So, yep. but you primarily. McBride and the Ride and all, you played bass. Did That's you, right. Were you playing both at the same time? Well, did I you was. Gravitate? Well, I was. When I was nine, you're right. I got a little home movie 
uh, which, uh, you know, these days we've, we've put on the DVDs or whatever, so we yeah. can still watch them. But my dad's coming around the side of the house. We're on our little back porch kind of area. And my mom had made a Christmas a Christmas cake. My mom had made a birthday cake uh, the shape of a guitar, you know. And uh, so I'm holding that. <laughs> I'm nine. Right. And my dad comes around the corner playing this tiny little guitar he bought in Mexico. And uh, that was all the the look on my face. Because I, I idolized my dad you know, as a young guy. I looked up to my dad so much. He was my hero. And he was Elvis and all that kind of cool stuff wrapped in one for me, you know. Had cool guitars. He had a cool look. He had band guys were coming and going, speaking some crazy cool cat lingo that exactly. I wanted to be a part of. I mean, a lot of that going on. Yeah. Almost kind of beatnik vibe at times at our house, but it would be rehearsing. My dad was way into recording early on. He had like a woolen sack and he had these old reel reels. We had a oh, Tascam 8 track studio when that first came out in the 70s. The Tascam 8 track it like, was a big deal. It was almost. You could put a studio in your home, you know, as well the beginning of that sort of thing happened. Would that would that use two inch tape or whatever that use? Uh, no, you could do that. That was just like on a half inch tape okay. or something. It wasn't even a big machine. That was the beauty of it. See, it it sort of condensed that expense. It was more of an affordable way to get into a studio at the time, Man. you know. But we had all that. We were splicing tape. My dad was really good at it. We had an engineer friend from Austin. Right. All of our players for the sessions would come from Austin. Reese Wyman was uh, our piano player. Oh, man. And so Reese, I met him. I was getting to play on these sessions. We were doing jingles, whatever my dad could you know, drum up business yeah. to keep the studio alive and cutting projects. I was recording stuff, trying to, you know, with my 18-year-old voice and sappy love songs. I was trying to write horrible, horrible stuff. <laughs> But <laughs> with my Peter Frampton perm to go along with it, as if all that wasn't good enough. Well, dude, on your website are is a collection of the best pictures I've ever seen in my life, <laughs> dude. I I was I just kept stopping and like the, the, my favorite is you and Ronnie Millsap. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm about eighteen. Now. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was thinking. When you mentioned the perm, I'm going like I got my Elton John glasses on. It looks yes. like those were yeah. actually blue. That's in black and white. That that picture. <sighs> But those are like a pale blue. <laughs> I was already scaring the relatives a little bit at an early right. age. But yeah, I had my perm. No, I had I had my hair straight in that one. But was I, it okay? I went through a perm phase. There's some, I think, some girlfriend or somebody talked me into something. Well, obviously, there's some sweet mullets in those pictures. Yeah, the like we all list. had mullets, mullets and, on full display in those photos. Who ever thought a string tie over a <laughs> wife beater would not be a good look? <laughs> That's fantastic. It's a lot. It, it, it lives on through the through oh, YouTube yeah. or whatever. Uh, people bring it up all the time. One woman was disappointed that I didn't still have it. Oh, uh, the mullet. I said, you know, you got to move on eventually. So uh, just cut her off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you obviously were killing it playing wise. I mean, just a few: Leroy Parnell, Johnny Duncan, Rosie Flores, Delbert McClinton. I mean, Bill Carter. He wrote all those awesome SO, oh, Stevie Ray you songs. Bet, man. I mean, were you? Were you starting to write then, or were you just playing, or were you just trying to hang on and learn what you could? I was trying to do a little bit of everything. Yeah. And you know, Bart, to answer your earlier question that I think I didn't, uh, my dad gave me the guitar when I was nine. Oh, but when yeah, I was yeah. about 12 or 13, it just, I just realized I got off track there, but uh, my dad told me when I was about 12, he said, you know, uh, you want to grow up, you think you want to play with me and my band, and he was a serious musician, my dad could... Uh, 
he wrote all the charts out by hand. He came oh, up man. here, he had the number system early, early on in the 70s when it first started happening. But he would write string parts by hand. Golly. Notation. Yeah, he was self... He, a, a piano player, when he was a young guy, taught him on the road in a band he was in uh, with Jimmy Heap, sort of a Central Texas popular big band kind mm-hmm. of guy. My dad was the featured singer, vocalist in that kind of band back in those days and guitar player. Phenomenal, talented musician. Just uh, could play that Scotty Moore, cool stuff, Elvis. Yeah. He, he was the Central Texas Elvis. They called him the Central Texas Cat. And uh, nice. he graduated high school in 55, 1955. Right at the height of the Elvis. Elvis was stationed in Fort Hood, 30 miles from where I grew up. Okay. So my dad would run into him. My dad was playing gigs. My dad was playing outside Dole and Ron's house of Curtis Mathis, it was called. We buy your televisions, you buy your bids. He's on a flatbed truck. Well, Elvis is in the Army, so he drives by. My dad's probably doing Elvis or right. whatever. And because uh, he did a lot of that, he did a lot of Elvis and oh, rockabilly, awesome. mainly rockabilly is what he was doing at the time. And Elvis would drive by, I think his mom and dad with him, roll the window down. He'd listen to my dad, make the light, make the block come back. He might do that two or three times. And then he That's would run awesome. into him at a couple places where there was music. Elvis was, you know, hungry for, you know, starved for entertainment, I'm sure, being in the military at that, that point. But yeah. uh, then my mom and dad went to see him in Austin, which at a venue was a skating rink, which later turned into the Armadillo World Headquarters. And uh, Elvis gave my mom a photo eight by ten signed something juicy on it and uh it was you know rumored that she he might have had the hots for my mom right. and my mom liked to bring that up and throw it up in my dad's face yes. all the time just to <laughs> just to keep me on his toes yeah, you know you call yourself the texas elvis <laughs> yeah. you know who really likes me i got me? the real thing remember that time to... elvis hit on me <laughs> right. it's like that's kind of where it went all these years later yeah it's like remember that time elvis did me back there you know <laughs> I'm always kind of mean like that. She might say anything. Lord knows she has to me. That's right. That's right. So I was. I can't think. Well, so you were playing, and you started writing. Well, that's it. That's the thing. My dad turned me into a bass player from a guitar. Okay, that's that's the point I was trying to get to. Uh, because he just knew hard for him to find a good bass player, you know. Sure. And he was a great guitar player. There was no need. Yeah. So I went from that to playing bass, and I liked it. We went to a little pawn shop. Found a little SG copy uh, oh, yeah. of Ventura bass, and uh, I loved it. Four strings, heck, man, it was like it, it. I fell right into it. Then in high school, I got in this band of older guys. They needed a bass player. The yeah. the, ba- the the piano player actually was playing a uh, f- like a Fender Rhodes bass. Have you ever seen one of those? Like a little keyboard bass, Mm-mm. Fender made. No, I don't think so. Very unusual. Uh, looked like a little Rhodes, but about half. Or, a quarter of the size. It was weird. And it was up on a stand. He could stand up and play it. Boom, da boom, da boom, da boom, da boom, da boom. Yeah, yeah. Like these shuffles, you know, in Texas right. or whatever. Uh, that quickly went away, and then I became the bass player. So uh, I liked it, and I found a home early on for it. And then that led to all through high school trying to write songs because I was just all about music. You know, I was a big fan. I love music, love the artists. I was really, you know, uh, very interested in who wrote the songs early on. My dad yeah. had a Billboard magazine that would give you some info, and it was just so interesting to see those same names pop up on there, whether it was, you know, even Stevens on those Eddie Rabbit oh, songs yeah. or whatever, you know, Dickie Lee to whoever Harlan Howard was on there. Yeah, but the, a lot of those names kept popping back yeah. up, and I found that fascinating and interesting. And not only did I love that artist, but then I started falling in love with these songwriters and I kept seeing their names pop yeah. up. Then later it was Dean Dillon. On all those George Strait records, I went, man, who is this Dean Dillon guy? I love these songs. And 
George is singing songs you'd think he wrote. Oh man! But they were so good. Dean was co-writing most of those. Yeah. You know, as well as a, a lot of other fantastic songwriters too. I mean, that, that uh, made up those George Strait records at that particular time. So, in 1989, you came to Nashville. Was that mostly because you wanted to write with those guys? Were you just sick of Texas? Or, or <laughs> no, you know what I mean. Like you thought you'd pinnacled out there in Texas and you were coming up here to conquer a new world or what were you thinking then? Well, I had been coming up here. I'd been slowly making trips up here as I was going through my starving musician phase down in Texas, you know. But that period was one of the most memorable and exciting times of my life, which is the way it kind of is sometimes, you know. Wasn't a lot of money, but man, I was getting exposed to some fantastic artists. Stevie Ray Vaughan, you know, uh, Delbert McClinton. I, I got in Delbert's band, auditioned in his living room, Left my gig, the band I was playing with in Lubbock, so confident I was going to get the job. Who knew? I mean, I wanted it so bad. I, I thought I showed up rehearsed and ready to go for sure. Yeah. And a couple guys came with us. One guy didn't make the audition. They sent him back on a bus back to Lubbock. Mm. Me and the uh, saxophone player, Don Wise, who I've known <laughs> since I was a kid, who played with my dad. Okay. I was six years old. I met Don. And then we ended up playing in Delbert's band for a couple of years. So I did that. Delbert just introduced me to a whole new way of life in so many ways. One, touring. I, I mean, I yeah. toured with my dad. We had our own bus. It was pretty professional, and we did a lot of dates, you know. Toured with some fantastic bands and wonderful musicians, but Delbert was, you know, we were on tour with Huey Lewis. Uh, after my audition in the living room, uh, two nights later, we were on stage with uh, opening for John Fogarty for a month. Oh, you know? man. Yeah, we kind of hit the ground running, to say the least, you know, and I didn't come back off of that little run for six weeks. That was a six-week run before I got back in my truck. Dang, welcome to the band. Son. <laughs> my wife had moved all of our stuff from Lubbock to Austin during that period. I lived in a different home when I, when I came home. Did you know? Yeah, <laughs> I was welcomed back home even, which was always a surprise. When did you move? Yeah, that was kind of wild. I had a, t- a different address when I got home, but fortunately the ki- wife and kids came with it. That's, that's yeah, good. Yeah, it, it had a happy ending there. And fortunately they're still there all these years later, but... Yeah, that was a great period in my life because, and also Reese Wine, and we mentioned him earlier, yeah. he, he went on to play. He was playing with Delbert at the time. He kind of plucked me out of that little studio, my dad's, and said, man, I know some guys in Austin. He introduced me to Leroy Parnell. Yeah. He was looking for a bass player, and Reese said, I'm doing this little cocktail gig at the Hyatt with Ernie Durava, who was my dad's dear friend. He played in the Texas Tornadoes. He was okay. a drummer. Played with Doug Som years ago. Right. He's just a fantastic person. My dad loved him, and I do too. And um, he'd been in and around my growing up period, especially as a musician. He was part of that cocktail gig. So Reese got me the gig, and it was a feature. A guy that was a school teacher, Carl Hutchins, was the singer, and we were set up right by the waterfall in the elevators, you know, like a in the atrium there. <laughs> yeah. We could eat in the employees' cafeteria. Nice. Do that every night, <laughs> and then I—I I don't think I was drinking that period at that point, but. Uh, Started saying because we were making fifty bucks a night, uh, five to nine, oh. and then that was like six or nights a week. But think about it, five six nights a week uh, in Austin back then. It was a decent yeah. little bit of money. And then Reese put a band together called the C Notes and kind of featured me as the singer, you know. And we did all kind of cool stuff from you know Marvin Gaye, ain't that peculiar to original tunes. It was crazy, but a fantastic band. Hmm. Most of Delbert McClinton's band and me. Uh, so, and we were out opening shows for Delbert. That's how I kind of first got to know him a little bit. And then uh, mm. and Reese just took me in. And that period as a musician really grew, and I focused on that more so than songwriting. But 
as that went along and I got more opportunities, I also felt frustrated that I wasn't. I, I knew that I just didn't want to be a bass player yeah. for the rest of my life. I wanted to create songs and music. I just felt that was my only chance, you know. I felt I had a little knack for it. I could put ideas together, piece of yeah. song together, kind of, I thought. But in the beginning, you're just writing by yourself. Nobody wants to write with you. Sure. You've had no success. You haven't done anything. Nobody's interested. And then I left Delbert to try to focus on that. I cleaned up my act. I got sober. Um, I, I, I thought, i got to get it together, you know. Yeah. I was kind of spiraling out of control, to say the least. Uh, mainly with alcohol, which I've struggled with over the years. But... Uh, I just had to do something to change my, my my way of life, and also had a family. I just all of a sudden it just fell on me. I went, I got to do something. Yeah, and I did, and, and I got I got sober. I got healthier. I, I auditioned for this band with Bill Carter and the Blaine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got the gig, fantastic band. We went down the road, did a whole Stevie Ray Vaughan tour, all the way up to New York and back That's from Austin, awesome. Texas. It was awesome. I, I idolized. Uh, Stevie, yeah, I met him in an airport. It was just like meeting Jimi Hendrix or something. For oh, me. absolutely! Yeah, I just thought he was the best. And then when I met him, I liked him even more. He was yeah. just a soft-spoken, sweet kind of guy. He, so autog- was- he autographed my cassette. You know, back then I had a Memorex clear tape blank. Yeah, yeah. And I had uh, copied and, and recorded my Stevie Ray Vaughan records onto it, oh, which awesome. I'd already bought. So right. I wasn't really, you know, just stealing anything back right. then. I didn't think about that kind of stuff yeah. back in those days. But I had it in my backpack, and here's Stevie. So I said, man, Stevie, would you sign my Stevie Ray Memorex? You know? <laughs> he said, oh, man, I'd be glad to. He did it. you know. And he had a cane that day. I thought, who looks – I saw him come. I thought, it's either a pimp or Stevie Ray. I don't know. <laughs> had to have a big oh, feather. He looked so oh, yeah. good. He looked so good. Is that a leopard skin kimono? Oh, Why, he yes, like a, it is. The rock star that he was. Dude. I was shocked. And nobody else really was paying any attention. They didn't realize. They didn't know who he was. I could see him coming a mile away. I was getting nervous. You know, how was I going to approach him? Would he want me to even say anything? I gave him a minute, and then I gurmed him big time. You know? Was Reese in his band yet? Uh, no, was that was before then. Just yeah, this was prior to that. Okay, because then see when I first got hooked up with Reese, he was still with Delbert. Okay, but I was hiring him to do weird gigs. Johnny Duncan country oh, show. Yeah. yeah, what the hard brought Reese out on that funky old bus. <laughs> Uh, he did some dates with my dad, some little private things. And, uh, you know, we were struggling musicians, man. You did everything. Then he'd get on the bus and go tour with Delbert, you know. And then the Stevie gig showed up. Yeah. And he was off and running with that date. And uh, But it was so fun because when we did the Bill Carter tour, of course, Reese was out there. Yeah. And we would come out at night and play Crossfire, which Bill and Ruth wrote. Right. Uh, we would come out and play that during the show, which was like mind-blowing, you know, Stevie. We would play Antones in Austin. Stevie would come out and play and jam with us. The Hole in the Wall. I have photos on my website. Yeah, yeah. Mentioning. There's me, Bill, and Stevie at the Hole in the yep. Wall. Held about 80 people. We probably had 200 people in there, you know. <laughs> packed in there, sweating. Stevie sweating. It was just, it was like a dream come true. Mm. Visiting with him, talking with him. It was a, I remember we rode the bus. Bill and I got out of the van one night and. We got a pick to come and ride for a, a, a night or two, and that was great. Truck stops with Stevie. We all ate. He went and played a video game. It was like karate kung fu video game that had just come out. He wouldn't even eat. He was so caught up in it. I, I thought that was so wild. You know, We were all hungry, and I know he was too, but he got caught up in that game and it never ate anything. Were you a Jimmy Van fan? Oh, oh, Jimmy no. Vaughn fan? Oh, yeah, because during the Delbert era, we did a lot of dates with those guys. Okay. Uh, the T Birds? Yeah. yeah. They were on fire. Uh, you know, Bill Carter had a cool song with them. Why I get up? Why should I get up? Real 
Bill always has a clever way of saying something in his songs. He wrote yeah. Willie the Wimp in his Cadillac Coffin. Did he really? So, oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, he, he and Ruth were just the most interesting couple. So on that tour, I played him a couple of my Stone Cold Country yeah. homemade demos. And they loved it. They went, yeah. man, this is so good. We like your voice. We like this uh, style. They were huge country fans. They had... Uh, as far as just history of the music, they knew it as well as anybody. Their album collection was unbelievable. Mm. They turned me on to all kinds of classic tunes that I didn't even know. Even some yeah. Ray Price things I hadn't heard, you know. Uh, as the curtains in the window wave goodbye. Have you ever heard that song? I doubt Crazy. it. Crazy. It's a Ray Price song. But things that, I mean, I know they turned me on to that song and a lot of other things. So then we started getting together and writing songs. Mm-hmm. I'd been to Nashville and had been rejected. Couldn't get in the publishing Houses, right. they, you know, unsolicited. I didn't even know what that was. Right, you know? no unsolicited material. What the hell is that? You know, we didn't have a didn't have a MacBook back then to go right. check out what the meaning was. And I was like, damn, I'm riding around with no dictionary. I'm screwed. <laughs> I got the natural don't know what anything means anymore. So it was a little humbling to say the least. You know, I got back in my truck or car and went back to Texas, but I kept coming back. I didn't really know anybody. I did slowly meet a few people. A couple guys uh, from Johnny Duncan's band, I think, okay. or one guy in particular. I remember I had a meeting one time. Dig this. You know, I'm trying to get some things going. I come to Nashville, and this guy was sort of a noted guy. His brother was a famous musician uh, that I'd known from Texas. Anyway, he was managing like Frizzell and West and a couple people. Mm-hmm. So I get there. There's no secretary. There's no nothing. I go in through the office. I'm looking around. He's in there in the office asleep in his chair. So... You know, now it's awkward. I've got a meeting with this guy that's sleeping on the job. Right. You know, uh, so I go back out, try to make some noise, <laughs> rustling, <laughs> knocking furniture, lamps over. He's he's out. It's like I don't know if he's dead. Finally, somebody came in, woke him up. I think a girl, you know, whoever his sister. <laughs> but every 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 experience was was odd and not very successful until yeah. Bill and Ruth. Then they sent, we started cutting these cool little songs using Stephen Bruton, oh, fantastic yeah. players, uh, musicians from down there, cut it at a cool studio, Arlen Studios, which is still there, a fantastic studio. Our friends run that, and Lisa's still there running that uh, studio. Lisa Fletcher and um, Freddie, they all connected with Willie down mm-hmm. there. But uh, uh, then we, uh, those guys sent it to Jody Williams here in Nashville. Oh, cool. And I, was, I wasn't affiliated with anybody. Never had a cut, nothing. And um, Jody was, Williams, they sent it to him saying that... Uh, was he uh, publishing or BMI? He was at BMI. Okay. He was at BMI back then before okay. all the publishing. Yeah. But uh, they said, man, we, we're, coming to te- we're coming to Nashville, you know, from Texas. We want a George Strait cut. And we were starting <laughs> to get a buzz about some of these songs. I had a song called Can I Count on You, a real country song. Mm-hmm. I had a song in there called Burning Up the Road that was real fun and cool, rocking tune. I had a couple bluesy things, a song called Ain't No Big Deal. It was just kind of cool, you know. And different. And that's what caught the ear of people, especially Jody right off the bat. And he said, man, these demos are good. I think whoever's singing this demo needs a record deal. Hmm. And we went, man, we're coming to Nashville. Get us a record deal. That sounds good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're going to be there anyway. We'll like, be there we in like uh, three 12 days. hours. <laughs> yeah. So we came on up, man, with no plan, really. And then Bill and Roos sort of started representing me at these meetings. They'd walk in. Bill's all tatted up, you know, and Roos got a really cool. They're just cool. They're a cool yeah. couple. Uh, I loved them to death and still do. And anyway, 
And they had a lot going on. They had a buzz. The Stevie Ray thing was a big deal, you know. Yeah. Tony wanted to meet them because of that. So we got our foot in the door. Thanks to Jody Williams, man. He made us a meeting at every... With Tony Brown. Uh, with Tony Brown. Yeah. We met with uh, James Stroud, Jimmy Bowen. I think maybe uh, one more meeting might have been Scott Hendricks. Was Glotty in the picture at that? No, yeah. he was, but yeah. didn't meet, we didn't meet with him. But I say that Bill and Ruth took a couple meetings, like I was saying, they were trying mm-hmm. to represent me. They took a couple meetings without me, so it could have been one of those meetings. Yeah. With the, like with the Tony Brown meeting, they're like, let us go. We're going to go. Like they, they were, then they're going to introduce me at some point. You know, right. The other. So they had the meeting with Tony, and, and they thought it would be best if the artist wasn't sitting there. They could get a real feedback of what's going on and then meet the artist you know, yeah. later. And we said, that sounds like a plan because we had no plan. <laughs> that sounds like a good plan because we don't have one. Right. So we did it. And then he said, man, and he, they said the first song, he listened to it. All the way through, rewound it, listened to it all the way through again. Dude, that never happens. No, that never happens, especially with a guy like Tony Brown. Yeah. He, we could have, I could have already been out of there, which is the way I've seen him treat other things like that. It's like, <laughs> yeah. no, man, that ain't never going to happen. <laughs> and and he's so cool. And at that time, he was producing Steve Earle. I love it. Oh, yeah. All the people I loved, especially yep. those early Steve Earle records, huge. Uh, you know, Detroit Town, holy cow, you know. Yeah. But anyway, so Still he was already on my radar. I'd already had a rejection letter from Tony Brown from Living in Lubbock. The standard form letter, yeah, with his signature at the end of it. It's like that was the biggest thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. I got rejected, and then about three years later, I got signed by the same guy. Yeah, which I showed him that letter one day. I couldn't believe it. That was the biggest thing that ever happened. Yeah, to me. Get, get completely passed on. That was passed, passed on. Yes, but uh, yeah, at that point, because I, I love Tony, and all these years later, I still do. We yep. still in touch. He stays in touch. He's just had lunch with him recently, and uh, he's just a great guy. Yeah, it's one of the big. Defining moments of anything good that ever happened to me was from that meeting. He 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 told those guys. He he, he said, "I want to." He goes, "This is the best thing I've heard." You know, come across my desk in, in a long time. And so they were all high when they came back to me. I was staying like we're staying Shoney's, okay, right there on Music Row. Yeah, know? and uh, we had a little room there. And they came back. They, they came back. They opened the door. And they went. Well, Bill puffed out his chest. He goes, "Got your record deal." <laughs> Dang, and he was serious. You yeah. know, he said it in a very joking kind of manner. <laughs> All swole up. That's your record deal. And he said, "Well, Tony said he wants to fly to Austin. He wants to meet you, and he wants to see if you're the real deal." And I went, "Oh my God! I hope I am. Whatever that yeah. is." And then uh, Tony said he he saw me. He was up high on the floor, and he looked down, and he could see this guy. I had like cowhide boots back then. Yeah, man. And Stevie had a pair, so I had yep. a pair. He noticed those in my sunglasses right away. He goes, I already like this guy, you know. So he went down. We hit it off. And he goes, man, I'm going to sign you. First of the year, you're going to be the first act I sign. And then he invited my wife and I to San Antonio to see George Strait for New Year's Eve. Mm. Uh, Vince Gill, Patty, Loveless, and, and George. So Dang. we killer. And he took me to the dressing room. He goes, here's the deal, man. Uh, I'm going to sign you. But think about this. He goes, you're a band guy. You know, Delbert... He had seen me play with Rosie Flores. I came mm-hmm. up here in Nashville one time, played with her. Um, and he said, uh, man, we need a band. We have this band, Desert Rose, and they're going away. They're off. The, they're done. And we need a band. Think about it. You know, if we could build a band around you, yeah, your songs. You play bass if you want. Do whatever you want, you know. And I was kind of disappointed because, of course, I wanted a solo deal. Yeah. I wanted to be George Strait, you know, whatever. And uh, but I also didn't want to starve anymore either. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought it's the guy I would love to work with more than anything, and here he's giving me a chance. And so I said, "Yeah, man, let's do it." You know, and 
He introduced me to, to Billy Thomas, Ray Herndon, Steve Fischel at the time. Yeah. Was our fourth member. And uh, we got together. We hit it off. We rehearsed. We rehearsed over in Steve's basement at okay. the beginning. Then they moved us to a soundstage somewhere. And then it was just like a revolving door of agents, uh, managers. They they stroll in. We play two, three songs, like wind us up like a you know, a little Man. whatever. We play two, three songs. Hey, then they'd leave. Right. Some more people would come in. <laughs> two, three, four MCA set all that up, you know. Yeah. And they were just running people in to get some feedback. And, you know, the feedback was really good. Yeah. It was a little bit different. It was a four piece band, a lead singer playing bass. That alone yeah. freaked people out. Uh, and um, we had real kind of, you know, very simple country songs. But what really sold it, which we had no idea, Billy Thomas is an amazing tenor. Harmony guy singing yeah. all Vince Gill. Even during McBride and the Ride, he was singing and working on records with Vince because Vince loved his voice. And yeah. Loved him as a player. And then Ray Herndon has a big old baritone voice. It was just like, made this perfectly formed little family harmony sounding thing that we sort of stumbled upon uh, through these simple songs. They had a nice chorus, you know. And that became our calling card. We thought we were going to be badass mm. musicians. Everybody's going to think we were cool and we're. Play, you know, we can do this and that, but what they really love was that simple yeah. harmony thing that, that was on our records. Well, that's kind of how what everybody remembers about Alabama. Well, that's kind of from that era is that three part yeah. harmony, kind of familial sounding. It was popular at the time, too. Yeah, right. It was, very popular. it was something that fit at the time, and it definitely our songs it fit too. Can I count on you? Sacred Ground was a, a, a song that we had early on, and then I started. started I wrote most of the material. Yeah. And I started thinking about that because we had a great opportunity to rehearse and work these songs up, even on the road, playing them and trying them out on the crowd. And we just found things that fit and built that into sort of our sound as we moved forward. Did you have, like, Sacred Ground just one night going out of my mind? Were those songs in you already? I mean, did you find them? Did you write them? That song, Sacred Ground, I found that song. Okay. Renee Bell. At the wow. time, she became my little my champion over there at the label when I got signed. She helped me through everything. She got me my first co-write. I mean, dig this. I grew up in Texas near Austin. Uh, Jerry Jeff Walker was one of my huge influences mm-hmm. growing up. I I loved L.A. Freeway. Oh, yeah. That's where I was waiting for a train. Uh, the list goes on and on. I, and live, he had killer bands. Reese was in his band. Jerry Jeff, at one time, I played on his records. Yeah, he it was fantastic. And there was Guy Clark writing those songs. Right. So Renee calls. And, of course, I'm from Texas, so in her mind, she's like, I got you some appointments. Uh, like uh, Max D. Barnes was going to mm-hmm. be one of them, which I wanted to write with him because uh, Vern Gosden, Chisel oh, Stone, is one of my favorites. And went out to his house. Wrote, but the, my very first co-write was with Guy Clark Dang. here in Nashville. So, man, I was just sweating oh. bullets over the whole experience. It was more almost too much for me, yeah. you know, as uh, songs I had grown up with. And the guy that had written them, and the guys, he was a big hulk of a guy. Anyway, and so I had like five ideas. I had maybe a, an okay one, uh, a backup, and a couple shitty ones towards the back. You know, I, I was gonna, I was going to try, willing to try anything to keep the ball rolling with guys. Clark, I like how know? okay was the top. Yeah, three with okay. That when I know it was okay, because I, I can almost remember part of it as I was sweating up to the office. He's like on the very top floor. He had a little oval. A porthole kind of window he could pop out and oh, smoke yeah. out of it. Smoke, yeah. yeah. He'd smoke out of it. And so he said, uh, but I tell you what, I got there not knowing what to expect. And by the end of the day, I felt uh, comfortable and somewhat welcomed by him. He really 
uh, went out of his way. And Guy Clark, the thing about Guy Clark, people who know him or admire him or love his music, he doesn't really need a guy to write a song, you know. He yep. can pretty much do the brilliant work on his own. Yeah. Uh, almost getting in the way, you know. But here he is in Nashville. I've got a deal. He's trying to make a living, too. I'll yeah. write with this schmuck who I don't even know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. But by the end of the day, me being from Texas, I think that helped. Yeah. We had a couple things in common. He felt good. He actually liked the song. He took it home and finished it, which I was just so proud to yeah. that it moved it, it, it helped me in so many ways. One, gave me a lot of confidence that I just did not have, or gave me a little confidence. Yeah, it, it was humbling at every turn. <laughs> when you're getting started, it's still weird today yeah. showing up and writing and meeting. But back yeah. then, with people like that, I wanted to be accepted and I just wanted to be able to hang out. Really, so I'm getting to know him. You know, he likes the little idea. Things are going well. Then he goes, uh, "You want to get high?" And I went, "Yes, sir." <laughs> So yes, now, I do, sir. now I'm high with Guy, and it's a whole different experience. But uh, I think that's why he graciously went, let me take this and finish this. Because when you get high, you're no fun to be around at all. And you haven't said a good idea since you got here. Since the title, it's been downhill. You started off slow and petered yeah, out. That's right, started off okay and didn't get any better. You know. Oh uh, well, uh, yeah, that's a weird experience for people who haven't done it. Showing up and writing, "Hey, how you doing?" Now let's pour our heart out, yeah, and write something really meaningful here. It's a weird process, and some days I'm 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 good and comfortable with it. Some days it's not as good. You know, yeah. it's just one of those things. Now I don't sweat it as much as I used to, which I think in some ways that helps. But uh, yeah, uh, I always thought that that desperation was good and or yeah, bad. Yeah, the perspiration. Yeah, desperation. because I mean, because you would really laser focus and knuckle down but yet sometimes you'd get frantic and want to finish something because you got to get songs finished yeah and so it's kind of both ways it becomes a job when when you do something with a big publisher there's certain demands that have to be met and things that have to be done and it not that it takes the fun out of it because it does introduce you to a lot of people yeah you've got a big when you're working for a successful publisher uh, you're going to get all kinds of opportunities, and then it's kind of up to you what you make of it, you know? Absolutely. Some days you feel like you've knocked it out of the park. Other days, like, I, I don't want to hear that song again, let alone anybody else. But, but yeah, I don't I don't sweat it and worry about that as much. But I've made some great relationships over the years because of it. So Absolutely. That's I take away from it. And I've been fortunate to have a, a, you know way more success than I thought I would. You know? Oh, yeah. I always hope to have a song cut, you know? My very first... Recording of anything came from William Lee Golden. Okay, I was living in Austin. I met Tony. Tony was going to sign me to a deal. Well, William Lee left the Oak Ridge Boys, and he was going to do a solo deal. And Tony was going to try to cut some sides on him to help him. And they cut one of my songs, a song called "Every Step of the Way." It was actually our first single that didn't do well, but uh, he was on Nashville now. Ralph Emery. Okay, and uh, he was going to sing my song. You know, I'd never had a song recorded by anybody or anything. So we got people together. We got pizza. We got a house full waiting for, you know, <laughs> here comes William Lee Golden, you know, every step of the way. It's my song, man, on television. <laughs> Woo! It, it might as well have been Elvis. It wouldn't have mattered at that moment, you know. Was that the first time you'd heard somebody Anything. else do one Anything. of your songs? Yeah. And nothing. I had nothing prior to that. I'd had, uh, no, really nothing of that. Didn't that level. just blow your mind? Oh, it was mind blowing, man. It really was. And, there was Tony, just by knowing Tony, he's like, I know a good song, and this kid just came to town, and uh, let's try these couple. You know, he, We haven't even cut a record on him yet. Let's see. 
I mean, I was in Austin, and some producers, uh, uh, Blake Mevis had come down oh, yeah. from Nashville, recorded and produced those early George Strait songs that I loved. He came down to Austin to produce this kid named Tony Perez. It was on Warner Brothers. And he used Austin musicians, me and a few other guys that were kind of playing, Stephen Bruton, uh, Freddie Fletcher, cool little group of guys that we were playing with and doing shows and stuff. And uh, we were all friends. And he had a song called uh, Here in the Real World. A. Jackson is what it said on the lyric. Okay. But there was no Alan at that time. We'd never heard of an Alan Jackson. This was way before that. But I thought, that's a cool song. Yeah. But he brought that with him from Nashville. Because I was always looking to see who wrote something yeah. that was on the lyric sheet, you know. But we knew that was a cool song, but never heard of Alan before. But, uh, yeah, great experience. Mm. That whole Austin scene allowed me to do all kinds of cool things. I say starving musician days, and it was, but like I said, some of the most, uh, you know, those are the things that sort of shaped me and helped me kind yeah. of hip to stuff and, and turned me into kind of what I ended up being because I was around and had so many opportunities of just playing and singing and writing. And even with Bill and Ruth, those were successful songwriters in a community that wasn't Nashville, New York, or L.A. or living right. in Austin, which is certainly the music scene there has always been yeah. thriving and doing well, but... These guys were real artists. They had real cuts by artists I admired and looked up to. Yeah. So it was a wonderful opportunity. <clears throat> I mean, as far as being maybe out of the uh, recording meccas of L.A. and Nashville, it was the best opportunity I could have had. Absolutely. Yeah. And then we knew we had to get to Nashville to try to get some cuts and things. And unfortunately, doors opened. But it wasn't always that way for me in the beginning. It was very humbling. It was very frustrating. And it seemed like something that was just not possible you yeah know, to ever crack i'm never going to make it here i'm never going to be the oh, right never, i'm never going to have the right song i'm never going to sing good enough and i just didn't feel like it was ever going to happen i was really disappointed every time i left because there's so many people on the fringes that are in the business but can't help and are just yeah. kind of there to either take some money there's still a little element of that that lives here you know it's and if you meet that and get caught up in it, you're doomed. You know, yeah. You could get caught up in some deal. You'll never get out of it. There's nowhere until you're way past your prime. It could be bad. Yeah. But no one, I never did anything like that, but I just, I wasn't meeting any of the right people, successful, you know, happening people here until Bill and Ruth, and that opened the door for me. Well, you guys, I mean, you were managed by Ken Stiltz. Yeah. Who managed the Judds and stuff. You right. did four albums, right? Yeah. And then you did so. a, a fifth in 2002. Oh, uh-huh, yeah. But, uh, Dual what, yeah. What what breaks up a band if you if you if you want to say? I mean, well, I know you did a million dates. I'm sure you. Just, oh, we did. We were so everything. fortunate to be caught up in that '90s thing, that early '90s that just took off. You know, we we're riding the wave of Garth and yep. and a host of other unbelievably successful artists at that time. Alan, Travis Tritt, Brooks and Dunn came along. You know, Clint Black was happening. It was yep. just it was a lot. You know. Bands, Diamond Rio. There were oh, tons of bands back then. Little Texas was on fire. Uh, Lone Star was happening. Yeah. You know, I mean, there were a lot. There was a lot going on in Nashville. So yeah, we were doing about two hundred dates a year. Ninety two, ninety three, ninety four. Lots and lots of touring, and we were fortunate to have some singles. We were yeah. staying fairly consistent with little top five records and. Got nominated for ACM and CMA Vocal Group of the Year. Yeah, we did. New Vocal Group and Vocal Group of the Year one year. That's where I met Ronnie. We were nominated for, uh, I think it was New Group of the Year, uh, 92. And it was us, Diamond Rio, and Brooks and Dunn on that show. And flew out to L.A. My wife mm. had never been to California. Took her with me. Get off the elevator. 
And there's Ronnie, Dunn, and Janine, his wife, mm-hmm. at the, when the doors open. And I went, damn, Ronnie fucking Dunn. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, damn, Terry, Terry damn McBride. He, but he was a fan. He and his wife, Janine, they lit up. He's like, oh, we love your music. That's went, pretty cool. Wow, I, you can't, you have no idea. I was, yeah, I didn't know what to think. I was such a fan of Ronnie. Neon Moon had come out, you know, and I love that song. Love yeah. his, his voice. I love the song. Wrote it by himself. Uh, it's just the best use of S's in a word. The yeah. words of every sad song seem to say what I think. I mean, that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. That is brilliant. And that's not easy to do. It's really not. It's, now you get older, it's more of a whistle than yeah. a S on that. But, <laughs> but, but he was already doing cool stuff that I was just way into. He and Kix both. And I'd already met Kix because Kix co-wrote Sacred Ground. Right. Uh, with Vernon Rust. Oh, man. And uh, and uh, we had a number one party for that, so that's how I met Kix. Not a not a better way to meet a guy than at a number one party. So he was, he was happy, and so was I. Yeah. And then I met Ronnie later at the awards show, which I took Kathy out there. We'd been at the awards all day. You know, they, they shoot early because it's on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we'd been in there, and I think we... We presented to give something away that day. It was really cool. The whole experience was great. Uh, Brooks and Dunn won. Uh, went to Spago's that night, and Jerry Seinfeld was at the table next to us. You know, my wife is freaking out. I was like, I didn't know who he was. I guess Seinfeld had just started. It's right. too, you know. So, and she was all, oh my gosh, I'd never seen her like that. So I just took her over at one point, and introduced her. It's like Larry David with him or whatever. The other guy was not amused, but. Jerry could not have been a better guy. I said, hey, man, I'm a country singer, and I hate it when people bother me at dinner, but hey, here I am. My wife loves you. Oh, it's horrible. But he was so gracious. He's like, well, man, what are you doing? I said, we're here for the award show. Oh, man, uh, who won? I said, we were nominated uh, for an award. And he goes, who won? I said, Brooks and Dunn. He goes, oh, yeah, like he needs another award. That's what he said. <laughs> He's not a country fan. No. He's very polite. <laughs> They're extremely polite. Yes. Yeah, Kathy was oh, so like happy. He needs another award. It is, yeah, like he needs a, Brooks and Dunn. So, uh, so then we got, we were, we were, we were big timing in Hollywood that night. We had our limo waiting on our way to the Universal party, you know, the after party. Mm-hmm. And our limo driver goes, uh, man, there's a riot in the street up here, up ahead. We got to turn around. We got to get out of here. We're like, riot in the street does not sound good. No. And it was the night the Rodney King verdict had come down. That's what I was going to So while we were at the show taping the awards show, the verdict had come down. Wow. And the city had turned into. Exploded. Oh, it was unreal, man. It was so scary. Mm. We realized we were in the middle of something we had no business being part of. We went back, made it back to our hotel. And Ken Stills, our manager, was with us. The Judds were with us. Uh, they had to hire security for the hotel. We yeah. didn't know what was going to happen. All we could tell was from out our window, we could see fire uh, buildings on fire. Oh, was like burning up, you know. And helicopters, oh, it was shocking, man. And we couldn't fly home. The next day, they were shooting at planes taken off at LAX uh, with the jets. So they <sighs> shut the airport down. Nobody was flying. So we were stuck. For about two, three days, we ended up there. We finally got out. And when we did go to the airport... Down La Cienega, like I was saying. Yeah. Smoldering, burnt, everything. Cars and everything else. It was shocking, man. I had no idea. So, needless to say, my wife's never been back to California. That was her only experience. Has she never been back yet? She's never been back yet. That was her only time. Hey, baby, welcome to Hollywood. (laughs) California. Isn't the sun great? The first day was unbelievable. Yeah. And then the next day was that. It was like, holy cow, what happened, you know? Honey, that's what gunshots sound like. You could hear it? (laughs) Yeah. I could go on top of the hotel, which is... You know, here we are, 
posh right across from the whiskey, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we don't, we just didn't know what we were about to get into. Had no idea what was going on, you know. Other than something, something bad. Of course, we knew what the problem was, but as far as it, where it was going to spread and who was going to be involved in it, and then watching television, what was happening just down the street was quite shocking. People getting drug out of their cars and pulled out. And, yeah, it was amazing. And like I said, she's never been back. But well, I've got to take her back someday. There's a beautiful. It's beautiful. I love California. Maybe you just go to wine country or something <laughs> yeah. instead. We just picked a bad weekend. Yeah, it was just it was just bad. I've been back many times. Yeah, I love it. Uh, north to the whole coastline there. Oh amazing. yeah. Well, man, as a writer, obviously you've had cuts, and I know this is just a small list, but uh, Garth. George Strait, Reba, Hank Jr., Alan Jackson, Kenny Rogers. To the best of my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're the only writer I know that's had a cut on a Ronnie Dunn album, a Kix Brooks album, and Brooks and Dunn albums. Oh, I never thought about that. I believe that's true. <laughs> yeah, I had Kix's single, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I've had the Brooks and Dunn, and I had I wrote and co-produced that first solo yeah. record for with Ronnie. And what, and I'm probably wow, right. Wow, I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. <laughs> you had 25 Brooks and Dunn cuts, is that Yeah, right? uh, somewhere around there. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I don't know, I'm going to have to, you can do a better math than I am right I, now. But yeah, we ended up on a good little run. There's no doubt about it. That was a, and a bunch of singles on top of that. So 13 singles. Yeah, that sounds, I'll take it. And you've had 12 BMI Millionaire Awards. Is that oh, still? Really? I 12? think so. I think so. Maybe 13. So I, I I just did the math for fun. Uh huh. Twelve million spins. I'm going to say a song is three and a half minutes long. Oh, uh huh. Yeah. Just, that's six hundred and sixty thousand hours of airplay. Oh wow. If that's right. If I <laughs> fat fingers math, push, right? <laughs> dude. Um, well, it was a great run. That alone, just that Brooks and Dunn era, was just a fantastic time for oh, me. Oh man. The friendship that also uh, developed and grew out of that with Ronnie was uh, yeah. pretty amazing. You know we. We sort of went at it as a mutual admiration for each other and what we were doing. But then when we got together, we were kind of like uh, old pals, old high school buddies. We had so much in common, music, family, uh, personally, just uh, a lot of things we could talk about. And because of that, Ronnie's always been sort of a uh, introvert, shy kind of guy, yeah. you know. And even then, he hadn't welcomed a lot of people. He'd just gotten his first bus by himself. Right. Got off the band. Left kicks on the band bus, got his own bus. But when he, they had cut a song of mine in 90, 1996 called I Am That Man. Mm-hmm. And, Great uh, song. I, I recorded for myself. I thought it was going to be a solo project with MCA. They passed on it. Or Scott Bruschetta passed on it. Okay. And uh, my pal. Yes. Which Brooks and Dunn took it into like a number one song. But uh, he just didn't hear it. And so it was disappointing. But then it was also, it led, even with that disappointment, because I didn't know what I was going to do. I just didn't want another deal after that I knew yeah. that I was tired of more focus on writing there again and Brooks and Dunn took that song and it became a hit introduced me more so to Ronnie Ended up, he invited me over to the house and said man I'm getting ready to go to California on a 15 day run why don't you come go with me you know I got this bus and I said yeah man hey, let's, let's do it you know and but we went out I think we wrote 10 songs on that trip <laughs> He's Got You was one of them Beer 30 I think we wrote that a couple other things that ended up being recorded, but we knew we had a we had some kind of connection where we yeah. could share and write, and it was fun, you know. And so that trip turned into thirteen years man. before I got back off the bus. Ronnie was just like, "Man, 
this has worked out so good. Listen, when the bus is rolling, man, come get on it. You know, it's open. The, 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 it's a wide open invitation, you know. So I did. And that led to all kinds of other great things. Uh, me and Kicks and Ronnie traveling, you know, duck hunts, race car, whatever. Yeah. We got into all kinds of fun guy stuff back then. And uh, it was just a whole lot of fun. And we were having success all of a sudden with your pals. You know, it's like Dude. it could not have been better. Every celebration, it was just so much fun to share that. And yeah. for them to embrace me, Kicks just welcomed me in. Here I, he could have looked at me as a, like a songwriting threat. I'm right. over there hanging out. I'm having hits. Not once ever did he ever say anything other than something encouraging or complimenting me uh, to someone else. You know, I mean, saying something. He's such a nice always, guy, always man. Just the best. He still is. I mean, yeah. I just was. I was just part of the uh, Songwriter Hall of Fame downtown. They inducted Ronnie. You know. Oh, he that's into, right. Yeah, went into the Hall of Fame this year, and so he called and he said, "Man, I hate to ask my buddies, but uh, I wondered if you'd sing a song." for my induction in the Hall of Fame. I said, oh, man, I appreciate you calling. He had only asked me, and he's going to ask Chris Stapleton. Mm-hmm. And uh, Chris agreed, and then he backed out. Something happened. Uh, and uh, John Party filled in. He did a great job. Yeah, he yeah. Neon Moon. And I sang Play Something Country. And uh, those things are very subdued. They're very stripped down. They're very, you know, it's a, it's a nice evening. But I brought... Uh, uh, J.T. Cornfloss has always been a friend of mine. I love his playing. Yeah. And uh, early on... In his career, I brought him in to play Play Something Country. The song had already been recorded, but the lick wasn't there. And right. the track wasn't there. And I went over to start doing vocals with Ronnie at the bar, and Ronnie goes, man, song isn't there, which crushed me. Really? I went, man, I thought we'd written a hit, you know. And he goes, it's just not there. But to his credit, I said, well, man, I know some guys I could put together, and I think I know a guy that could play that lick. Oh, man. He goes, man, let's do it. Book so JT played that? Yeah, so I, I called JT. And they, the original was cut in the huge tracking room in Ocean Way. Oh, know? yeah. Ten-piece van. But for whatever reason, it just didn't... We'd had that lick in our head that we couldn't play, you know? Right. But we could, we could hear it and sing it so well. So I put a ragtag bunch of 18 players together, like, oh, yes. in Nashville, can you pick up the phone and find Dude, world-class musicians? No kidding. To get together, we went down to Emerald, you know, it was Benchmark now, and uh, it was Eddie Bears, you know, Mike Brigandello, yep. and JT, and Ronnie didn't know JT. So, uh, and funny because JT said at that session, he just told me, he goes, you and Ronnie both pulled up like a folding chair and sat down each side of me and sang that lick into my face. Like, <laughs> he said, you had every nuance of the <laughs> yeah. lick. He's like, I, I had no way to mess it up. Because you really did such a good job of explaining the lick, you know? And then he took off and he killed it. So the night of the induction, I thought, I'm going to do something fun. I wanted to rock it a little bit. So I brought just me and JT. And uh, he recreated the lick. And I uh, told the crowd, this is the guy who doesn't get nearly enough credit. You yeah. Know? And uh, I love JT. And I thought, and he loved the night. It was a long day, man. We had to, sound check was like 240. Then he just hung on back and got my daughters, brought them. Then there was a dinner. It took forever. It was about an eight-hour day. Yeah. And he had to hang out in the dressing room there. It was a long day. But it, he loved it so much. And uh, I told him, I'm going to put the spotlight on JT. These guys, they did not get enough credit, man. You well, that, that lick is one of those. It's like Roy Orbison and Pretty Woman or something. You know what <laughs> I mean? It's like that lick is such a part of that song. 
that it's got to be right. Or well, we all love licks. You know, yeah, you're a guitar player. You yeah. love finding a stupid lick that almost everybody can play. You Absolutely. Know? I'm always searching for those. That whole song is only two chords. Uh, play something country. It, right. It goes to a third chord in the solo. We went and got all fancy <laughs> in the solo. <laughs> You know, just to throw a little shocker in there. We went to the five chord. Hey, whoa, whoa. Yeah, whoa, oh, hey, yeah, that's hey borderline now. jazz shit there. <laughs> that's the Mattertown yeah. chords. Ooh, man. <laughs> yeah, so I love songs like that. Not easy to do to find a melody uh, and a cool something around two chords. But yeah. if you can, then that's that's pretty, That's pretty. that can be a lot of fun. Yeah. And we were just lucked out. There again, Ronnie had that lick in his head. And he sang it for months. We were never so glad to record a song in my life you know we quit singing that dang lick but <laughs> but he but he knew it he was he was pretty passionate about it and he had that idea when he bounced off the stage and onto the bus he's like man this like a hot chick down there he's yelling at me to play something country and he goes i kind of liked it yeah <laughs> the way she was yelling it at me he goes that could be a cool title I'm like, man that is a cool title. yeah let's use it and, and the funny thing is kicks came on the bus and we told him the idea. We're like, hey, man, come on, we'll go right there. And he said, ah, he had something else he had to do. He had to go. And so we wrote the song without him. He never made it onto the bus. But because mm. of my book that I write, I used to write things down back then. Kix's name is at the top because he was, I'd make all kinds of side notes. Oh, right, know? right, right. And uh, he, was, he was one of the side notes. He was there at the beginning, but we never got the song started. Man. Yeah. Which only is fair because I went out on the road and Ronnie calls me. He goes, I got this idea, man, called Red Dirt Road. Mm. And uh, I like it. I went, well, that's cool. I'd heard that idea before, but I thought, that's yeah. cool. You know, it's it's good. I'm willing. By the time I got out on the trip, he and Kicks were on the bus. I went over, and they went, man, let us play you something. And they played me the first verse and chorus of Red Dirt Road. I went, it ruined my whole trip. Yeah. You know, I, in a way, I was so happy for them because a lot of, I love Kicks, and I felt like he's getting left out of a lot of stuff yeah. sometimes, you know, especially me over there. But and for my first... Intuition. My first thought, rather, is just to go, son of a bitch. Are you kidding? I just got kicked out of a hit. But then when I thought about it, and then I realized what was going on, I was proud. I was proud of the kicks. And the song was so good. I could tell. I was like, man, that song's a hit. Then, by the time we got to Seattle, they had finished the the final verse. Uh, You know, like, kicks would go to his buzz. They Mm -hmm. were emailing, sending ideas back and forth. But then they came over and Ronnie sang the final version of it. I went, man, that, that song is so good. Yeah, I left was... there a little down. I mean, I realized only because I got, I just didn't it didn't line up for me on that yeah. song. But I knew it was going to be something huge for them, and it was. It was a great song, dude. I remember one night I was out riding with Lee Bryce, and I was in my bunk, and my cell phone rings. And it's Brother Terry McBride, and it is three thirty-four in the morning. I'll never oh forget that. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! And so I pick it up, and go, "Hey, dude, no, you're a brave man." <laughs> well, <laughs> and he said, "What are you doing?" <laughs> and I said, "I'm out here riding with Lee." I said, "What are you doing?" He goes, "Man, just had the best night. Me and Ronnie been passing the guitar back and forth, singing our favorite Merle Haggard songs." And oh, all I yeah. could think of was like. Did you record any of that? Because, oh. like, you two guys singing Haggard songs oh. would have been the best. Oh, dang it. I was just missing you, I guess, wasn't I? Well, thinking about just, you out down the road. It's just how we are. Connecting with my buddies. I, that's, <laughs> that's a big part of it for me over the years. Like I said, some of these relationships that have continued now 25 years. Yeah. I like Billy Thomas, even my band member talking about bands. Why did bands break up? Well, uh, unfortunately for us, the more success we had, the bigger the divide and the band became. Yeah. And the, the the main problem was <clears throat> we weren't a band that grew up together. Sure, we we didn't start you know in the club scene together, and we were very honest and op- upfront about that. 
Tony Brown had a wish list of people he liked. And he, he would do this with a dinner party, let alone a band. You know, he had people that would be perfect together. He was mm-hmm. always thinking and putting and thinking about it. He was, he was, you know, he's a producer. He was, he's producing and conducting and directing things all the time. And he had, a, he had Ray in mind because he had just cut that La Love It record. And Ray was in the band. Matt yep. Rawlings was in the band. Ray was in the band. They used the band on the record, you know. That's what made that first record so cool. Oh, man. And uh, so he knew Ray. Billy Thomas was playing with Emmylou Harris. Tony Brown, long history with Emmylou. He knew Billy well. He'd been using him on the Vince Gill stuff, so he knew him. And he put those guys together, and Steve Fischel. It was all Tony Brown's idea. Hmm. So we didn't start out collectively as yeah. a band that you know grew up from the high school days. Unfortunately, that's not the way it was. Yeah, Good musicians, great guys, really cool when we came together. But the problem with that is I was already a songwriter. You know, I already had my publishing deal, and I, I'd already done that thing. And then the songs started taking off. Now I'm making songwriting money. I'm yeah. making performance money. I'm making way more money than my partners in the band are. And that was just a hard thing. Plus, the band was called McBride and the Ride. Yeah. Always people would want to talk to me. Maybe not even talk to those guys. It would bug me every time. I would include them in everything. Yeah. And it was exhausting sometimes because I couldn't enjoy myself because I was too worried about these guys are getting left out. Yeah. And, and I, I, as a sort of a band brotherhood, love those guys. We had so much fun. Well, and they're and, out there uh, just like you are. At the end of the so. day, it was just too much of that. We walked yeah. into a radio station, you know, you must be making a killing. These songs are huge, you, you know. And those guys are going, man, we're making a salary. And, and so the financial side of it caused a rift. And, uh, you know, the spotlight caused a problem, mainly with Ray, who was a performer his, in his own right. That's so why he kind of grew up doing that. Yeah, Billy was just very gracious and, and, and about all of it, even up to the end. And because of that, we're all still friends, as yeah. crazy as that is. <laughs> or may seem... We all get together. We all talk. I just played. Billy came and played with me at the CMA Fest this year. It was killer. He was great. Well, you guys didn't break up because somebody slept with the other guy's wife or something. <laughs> it's like you just kind of no. grew apart or whatever. No, you it was it, it yeah. was just it was a lot. And and and, and we looking back now, we kind of left at a good place where you know it didn't ever really come to an end. My career leveled off definitely. The last record I I did sort of on my own and had the least amount of success with it, but that was a sign. For me, that the band was done, you know. Yeah, I knew it going into that record. I couldn't convince anybody else. Like, Brian, you've already got the name. Let's do another record. I went, you know, let's do a solo, something different, something really unusual, you know, whatever. Yeah, but I couldn't sell them on it, and so the only way to stay was to try one more record. But my heart wasn't in it. At that yeah, point, you know. And then when that didn't work, I just pulled the plug on it, got off the road, didn't take, cancel some dates, left the band, gave plenty of notice. Had great musicians with me. Bob Britt, you know, Ken yeah. Vaughn played guitar with me. So Dude. it was fun. Yeah. Gary Morris, killer steel player. Uh, Randy Frazier. Um, it was uh, Keith, played drums. Fantastic. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I managed to make it feel good and still sound good all the way to the end. But I didn't want it to trail off into some dates, start getting smaller, band starts getting weaker. Yeah. I just didn't want to do that and at that point it felt like that's where it was headed because my heart wasn't in it you yeah know? it just wasn't in it so focused on writing and fortunately i got that brooks and dunn cut george Strait was my one of my first big cuts mm. john anderson was my very first cut which i love john anderson so that was yeah. mind-blowing you know i gurmed him big time i lived in lubbock texas and we opened for john anderson and, and i uh wait waited by his bus his road manager 
got him. I got to go on the bus, met him. We did a good, we had a good band. We opened, and so he allowed me to come back and hang out with John for a minute. He didn't have his hat, nothing on, no shoes on. He was watching The Last Waltz on TV. Uh, and so I uh, met him, and uh, it was a lot of fun. And then years later, there he cut one of my songs. George Strait was the second, which was just like, that's what we came to Nashville for. Yeah. George Strait ended up getting a couple of those. And then the Brooks and Dunn thing really uh, took off. And then I was producing a couple of things. I just I helped develop this young guy, Jed Hughes. Yeah. He's gone to be a badass. And yeah. He was when I met him when he was 19. Produced a record for him at MCA. And developed a couple of the young acts. But really, that's not my bag. Uh, I just want to focus on what I'm doing moving forward, trying to write some songs and create well, a little bit of an uh, interest in me going out and touring. About a year ago, I think about a year ago, you put out Hotels and Highways, Yeah, which is awesome. I've been listening to it all week. Dude, your voice is still just oh, amazing and, oh, and as good as it ever was. I mean, Well, these days you've got the beauty and the luxury of being able to take your time with it, like we had at the yeah. time. I had a, had a nice studio to work out of, I had a great engineer. And I just beat myself up so much. It was just... It well, was I was going to ask you about that. You're, are you capable, that capable of being that honest with yourself? Oh, and, my gosh. Yeah. I can't. And, you know, the real thing that works for me is I go in and sing and do my best, you know. Then I take it home and live with it okay. and realize I have not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I've not done my best. That is not my best. But I've gotten to that point in my life where I realize one take, I don't high-five myself and go, you killed it. Because, <laughs> unfortunately, I don't kill it like that. I, I got to really... Uh, you look, listen back. Like I heard George Jones recently, and man, if a guy could milk a line, Dude. every line better than that guy, don't know who it is. On on certain songs, especially on certain songs, it's just like he made the most out of every yeah. simple line. He put the yep. most into it. I, I, I mean, I'm striving for that, but I'm mainly just trying to get rid of all the clunkers and things I don't feel good about. <laughs> You know what else is nuts is you think about those George Jones records and the Haggard records and George Strait, you, all those cats. Things so believable, it but was they would so they would do three songs a day. Yeah, you know because they were doing dates. Yeah. Man, it's like we got to knock these out because we yeah. got to get back on the. And it's like there was no Pro Tools, no nothing. I, I know it. I mean, even my era, I was thinking about it. Oh yeah, you know, we came up in three part harmony land with no way to tune it. You know, right. <laughs> But 200 dates on the road will make you a good band and a good harmony group, I'll tell you that for sure. Even on the bus going down the road, we rehearse ourselves yeah. crazy. What else have you got to do? We're hanging out. Absolutely. Uh, even Gary would bring his, his steel inside, get a smaller amp. Uh, of course, we had no PA in there, but we'd yeah. just gather around. Billy would play something with brushes. Uh, you know, I had my bass, and uh, I even had an acoustic bass back then just for that, traveling. But, man, we'd rehearse, rehearse. Those harmonies were like spot mm. on, and... Uh, it just came with hours and hours and hundreds of shows of doing it. But hey, in the uh, the video for Hotels and Highways, yeah. there's some old footage yeah. of you on a black Harley. Yeah, is yeah. that the bike that you got wrecked on? Yeah, that's my that's my bike. That, I was uh, wondering if that was. Up, I was yeah, thinking ending that was my it. biking career. Unfortunately, yes. love that motorcycle. That was early on. I just got it. Still had the. A windshield on yep. it. It was like out of the wrapper. Bags and everything. Yeah, I stripped it all down later. It was just kind of black and chrome. But I had that bike for a little over 10 years. And uh, like a lot of bikers, I, I had the classic motorcycle wreck where uh, someone just didn't see me. Yeah. Unfortunately, I was going about 45 miles an hour when they hit me. But mm. they just took off from a parking lot never seeing me. and uh, Which was shocking, man, because I woke up on a hardboard neck brace Ambulance going down I-65 here in Nashville. Yeah. Uh, I came to under those 
conditions, and I went, something bad has happened to me. Because <laughs> now all I have on is my underwear, <laughs> and a lot of my skin is missing. This is not my car. No, I was already on morphine, but, man, the pain was, like, uh, mm. pretty unbearable. I'd done a lot of internal things were going on with me that I didn't even know at the time. Of course, there's no way to know. Right. But my arm was, you know, I dislocated, broken fingers, lots of abrasions, and uh, uh, my knuckles were dan- and I really hurt a lot of a lot of pieces. The most shocking part was I woke up, and the EMTs trying to talk to me. Went, hey, can you give me a minute here? I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out who I am first of all. Yeah. And then, uh, but I said, yeah, I'm. I had pain. My shoulder was hurting. I could tell my fingers were broken. I'd had broken bones before, so. I recognize some of the <laughs> the same old feelings, but uh, <clears throat> it was my back was killing me. I had no idea why. I thought I was paralyzed. Maybe it was excruciating. And then I looked down at my feet to see if I was paralyzed. I, that was my first thought. I wanted to wiggle my toes if I could, and I was preparing myself for the you know worst. I just didn't know, and because of my I was in bad shape. Obviously, you know mm. I'd been thrown eighty feet. Gosh, it catapulted me just like off my bike. But in a way, in a weird way. I landed on my head, so it knocked me out. Chewed my helmet off. It just destroyed my helmet. Cracked it down the side. But it saved my brains, yep. my head. <clears> or <throat> it would have killed me instantly. I would have been gone, unfortunately, you know, for a lot of guys. I've ridden without a helmet, too, so I know that feeling. It's the ultimate convertible, you know. That's yeah. why I love motorcycles. And I've been riding for 25 years. That's also why they call a helmet a brain bucket. It was shocking to me that it happened to me, because it's one of those things you think it never will. But it did, unfortunately. And... and Fortunately, I, I was able to recover. But as I was in the ambulance, I looked down. Of course, I had no pants on. They cut all my clothes off. But I had ground my blue jeans into my kneecaps on both oh, legs. <laughs> so I went, this is, this is going to get ugly. It's already, <laughs> yeah, I'm just kind of you know, taking a, a little check and off a list of what's working and what's not. Those are my favorite jeans. Oh, yeah, I lost them. It really were. <laughs> and a great T-shirt from Phoenix that was gone. Dang it. But they bagged everything else up. I had earplugs in. I had uh, my boots, my sunglasses. Man. <laughs> they had it all in a plastic bag. When you get out of the trauma center later, they give you all that good stuff. Yeah, because that's what you uh, want to see. So then I went to the trauma center for a week. and Then they realized my kidney was bleeding out. I'd lacerated my kidney. I'd hit something on the road, you know, drug my body and flipped and turned and all down asphalt. So it was, it was not pretty, but I lived to... Uh, uh, talk about it, and, and uh, it's amazing what your body can take and keep on ticking because it was, uh, you know. But then, with that said, man, then you go to rehab, and then you meet people who are really in bad shape. Yeah. You know, it was nothing. Uh, I mean, uh, once I survived it, I realized I, I can get through this, and it was going to take a little bit of therapy and <laughs> get me back to where I was. But it was a lot of other things that went on, too lots of internal stuff, a lot of MRIs and that kind of thing. Didn't you wake up in the hospital in the news? Yeah, there was a was- story. Well, what was really freaky, I woke up and John Ritter had died. That was the first story on that morning that Johnny Cash had died. Then there was a story about me. There was a picture of my motorcycle on the news, all crumpled up. And and they said I had head trauma. That's why I was at Vanderbilt (laughs) Hospital. I went, that doesn't sound good. (laughs) They didn't tell me that. Wait a minute. (laughs) There was a lot of strange things going on with me. I had to have a catheter for a week, five days. And that's a a real experience. I haven't ever... You know, try to avoid I've, that if you can. Yeah, try to, but, uh, <laughs> if you can. That's don't not, check that box. That is not recreational. <laughs> try, to, try to stay away from that. It's, it can be brutal. But well, anyway, man. yeah, survive. Feel, feel good about it. <clears> just not riding it. That was my favorite, one of my favorite bikes of all time. And it, it scared everybody around me yeah. uh, as well. I've got, I have three daughters and my wife. And 
I love I love motorcycles. So I always yep. have. I just, I've done a little dirt uh, biking, four wheeling. I love that kind of stuff. I just on the road. You know, you see what we're traveling around and with here. It's heck. I, I have to take a double take all the time, making sure yeah, I'm not going to hit somebody. It's a uh, it's a traffic situation here in Nashville these days. So it's not real conducive for a guy on wheels. There's just no lot a lot of room for error. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I had lots of close calls, lots of near misses, and all that kind of stuff. You know, so a lot of people hurt. It just happens. You get so many people that yep. it looks like so much fun. Not everybody's cut out for it, you know. Man, I saw a lot of guys trying to learn, and then the Harley craze took off. It was just, it was no fun to go on a bike ride anymore. No. Somebody always ran off the road, or bike stalled out, or fell over, or oh my god! And it takes four of you to pick it up because it, it was weighs... yeah, it was just getting weird. But well, so you're doing a new record, and Luke yeah. Laird is producing it. Doing a new record. I've reconnected with an old friend of mine, Luke Laird. From almost 20 years ago, when I first met him, probably he was on the road with Brooks and Dunn. He was dating Ronnie's daughter. Now he's turned into the uber songwriter, one of those guys that's just so successful. I mean, 17 or 20 number one songs, I don't know. But he's on a roll that's unreal. Yep. And so I ran into him at the CMA Awards, and he was uh, like, Man, we got to get, we need to get together. So I reached out, and he gave me like two or three dates he put on the books. And so I went over, I had a couple ideas that he liked, and uh, we've turned it into cool little demos that he creates on the spot. You know, he just, he has a little something going. He's he's a huge fan of the 90s country yeah. thing. A lot of hand claps and stuff. He was, yeah. Yep. But he's got, my thing is really, it's pretty traditional fiddle and steel with just a little bit of a twist of his influence. Because he starts everything with a beatbox, you know, mm-hmm. like on his, with his mouth. Yep. He doesn't program anything really, other than samples, uh, stew guitar, if he wants a little fiddle or something. Then he plays really cool guitar parts. Yeah. Which we kept one song in particular. I'm going to have to practice hard to figure out how he did it. It's really cool. And it's a big part of the sound of the song because of it. But we had that little start pre production thing, and we just recently went in the studio, cut three sides, and really turned out great. Had a awesome. killer band. Really excited about it. And then we had a little conversation, and I said, Man, we're off to a good start. What would you think about? Working with me, finishing record, he goes, oh, man, I'd be honored to do it. And he's excited, so I am too. It's It feels good, and it started in the right place yeah. creatively, you know. I like situations like that where you don't have to talk somebody into something or vice versa, whatever. You get into something that yeah. does not work, you know. But we already we had three writing appointments, and we cut all three songs, and they're just kind of exactly what I'd like to have moving forward. Now we'll just add to it. I've got a few things I want to do. I wrote a really cool song that I want to get Delbert involved. It's a it's a duet for Oh, that'd be yeah, cool. It's a cool song called Went for One and Stayed Till Two. Nice. It's a little bit about our history together. <laughs> yeah. It's really fun. Roadhouse, <laughs> rock and tempo. And then hoping to write something with Ronnie. He he's been a big supporter of the uh, EP. I have yep. a song there called Boots Off that Ronnie shared on Sirius. He's got he has a little show on there, it's really cool. Called Road Trip. And he's been following my socials and giving me a little boost here and cool. there. And so he said, uh, after I performed at the Hall of Fame dinner, he said uh, he's committed now, so I'll shame him into that. But really, if we could write something, it'd be cool to do something together. Maybe sort of that Gary Stewart vibe that we both really love. Oh, you know? yeah, man. Something like that would be really fun. And then I may record a song of my dad's that my dad cut in 1971. Oh, man. Yeah, it's a song I recently started doing, and it's a interesting song because my dad was in Goose Bay, Labrador, on tour, way up in the middle of nowhere. Dang. And he was homesick for just Texas, you know, and he loves the valley, but he loved Corpus Christi. So he had this song called Corpus Christi Wind. And it's just about 
that and the the vision memories and things about being back there yeah where the you know the women don't walk around in gowns their hymns are three feet off the ground he says <laughs> which is so unusual that's that line alone i love it yeah it's very dated and i love it about that yeah even the arrangement lots of oohs and ahs lots of female voices it's very dated but it's really interesting it, it works its way to a crescendo of a note at one point that's extremely high too. It's really wild. That that's dad, cool. That my dad did it that way. But I'm hoping to uh, introduce it to uh, uh, Luke. We're having a meeting Friday about just moving forward. Yeah, yeah. Playing some songs. I want to hear some songs he might have. And then we're going to continue writing a few things. And you're out doing dates and yeah, I'm out doing dates and uh, new management, new agency, uh, working on this record. Uh, we did about 20, 25 dates last year, sort of to see if yeah. I could remember songs or not. And Dude, uh, so much about 17, 18 tunes that I I can remember now. And really, I've spent hours and hours uh, just rehearsing, trying to get better. And I have a, yeah. this little house we're in today is where I write, but also rehearse here. I have a little monitor system that sounds really good, better than a lot of the places I play, which is disappointing <laughs> at times, but... <laughs> It really allows me to sort of pretend like I'm in an environment of a performance set yeah. instead of just sitting in my bedroom on my bed <laughs> playing guitar. You just hear things so much better. Sure. And your voice and your guitar. And just singing again, standing up yeah, a lot and of dealing with monitors. With it's instrument. just a different... I have a few little pedals now yep. because I'm switching out a couple of guitars. And it takes a little bit of preparation to pull all that off. And I, I like to be prepared. So I've been, I've been putting the hours in. And the crowd's been getting a little bit... They're just, they've been good. They've been, they've been awesome. getting bigger and better. Not that they have to. I like a good, small, excited crowd. It doesn't matter to me these days. That's uh, that's sort of the fun of getting out and doing it again now, just seeing the reaction. We just did a little uh, acoustic uh, performance of me, one song, an old McBride and the Ride song that we shared this week on socials, you know, just to kind of keep reminding people yeah. that I am still alive. There was a point where you looked at my Wikipedia and it was questionable. <laughs> Looked like I might have died in '94, which was kind of sad. Fortunately, my new management—they jumped in there and they have like 110 cuts of different artists, in the or combined, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it looks, you know, it looks good. I knew I was doing some things, but you just didn't see it. Yeah, you know, which I like that people take the time to try and bring me up to date, Shoot you, man. <laughs> make me aware of what I've done. I, I really had no idea about all of that. I knew, you know, you just don't keep up with it on a daily yeah. basis like that. But it is good. To have proper, uh, you know, tunes and things that are, are are about you and for you. If you look at a lot of things, sometimes there's just a bunch of stuff that doesn't even pertain to me. Yeah. At least if you get on my site now or Wikipedia, whatever you want to find out, at least it, it is fairly accurate. You know, at this point. So. Well, you um, got TerryMcBrideMusic dot com. Yeah. What else you got? Well, I'm on Facebook, Terry McBride okay. Music, Instagram, the Terry McBride on. Twitter. Not, you're not just a Terry McBride? Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not very active on Twitter, but Instagram, Facebook, those guys, have yeah. really, that's been good. Because I'm getting ready to do this Texas run. I'm going to Houston, uh, Dallas, and Austin. You're leaving the day after Christmas? Yeah, it's going to be lonely. It's going to be strange. I've never worked or toured that particular time. Yeah. And it's all my fault. I agreed. These venues are all cool places I want to play. And so they offered me these dates. I agreed to take them. But with that said, we started selling some tickets uh, even on the Thursday night, which I was really afraid of, you know, it's like, I guess we got a few people that want to get out of the house. You yeah, know? that's a bigger room. It's called uh, Dosey Doe's in the the Woodlands, 
And it's uh, I think it's about a 400 capacity room. So be Delbert will play there. He'll play that room. They have all kinds of acts in that, in that room. It's pretty cool. They'll do some acoustic things like my show is all acoustic, like a one man kind of thing. But uh, it's been interesting. Mm. Yeah, it's been it's been good. It's encouraging. Like I said, it's uh, allowed me to continue on. And now we're scheduling a record to come out in April and oh, trying cool. to book a little tour around that. So we've been fairly successful so far finding some awesome. theaters. Uh, places that are set up for what I'm trying to do. Otherwise, it's it's no fun for anybody, yeah. you know. Uh, but if you find those sort of listening room type places, and and there's so many of those out there now, yeah. finding you know that's the good part about it. Whether it's the you know uh, whether it's going to be the Bakersfield Music Hall of Fame, oh man, or yeah. it's a cool theater in Phoenix, or whatever I'm doing this coming year, it's they're set up for that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, they had success with it. They're interested in what I'm doing. And the woman that runs the Hall of Fame out in Bakersfield just happens to be a an old fan, but you don't know till you make the calls. Yep. You talk to these people. This is my agent I get this information from. Right. You know? But just so happened, you know, I've got a supporter out there and somebody that's now giving me a cool routing date and we're able to piece this little tour together, you know. Well, so man. It's all, it's all new, even though it's something I used to do for yep. a living every day, but it's all it's all new and feeling good. Remember how to pack efficiently. <laughs> How many pair of underwear am I going to need? Under yeah, that's right. Or just, heck, heck, I'll buy when I get there. <laughs> and, I'll leave I'll them, and I'll leave them there. <laughs> well, man, you have said it all. You have done most of it. Oh, I hope so. I mean, you're not going to edit, so I, I, mm. I hope we, we said some interesting things along the way. Well, thank you so much, man. I really just always excuse to get together, Bart. Man, thank you, man. I appreciate your friendship and always oh, Likewise. And, all the best to you moving forward. I've enjoyed uh, the other podcasts, I listened down to Thanks. a little bit of everybody, my friends on there. It was really good. <laughs> Old Jeffrey Steele. I, I get with Jeffrey, as you well know, we visit for about an hour or two. Oh, dude. And then we write for about a half hour. Yep. You know? <laughs> and you probably get something done. And I'll almost get a song yep. out of it. But part of the fun of getting to the, uh, is, is showing up and getting oh, to experience man. Jeffrey and those guys. Bob DePiro is like, oh my gosh. We've oh, yeah. been laughing. Uh, I used to make. I used to come off the road with Bob DePiro and John Scott Sherrill, and something crazy had just happened to me. No matter where, I'm like a lightning rod for goofy shit. I don't know why, especially when I've been drinking. I don't know why, Bart. How that happens? I'm not asking for it, but somehow it knocks on my door somehow. every single night, and I invite it in, and it turns yeah. into crazy town every damn time. But I would come off the road, and then I would tell them my antics and what happened. Oh my god. Bob DiPiro would almost stroke out because of his laughter. Laugh. And then he has a laugh that's so, you know, oh my gosh. infectious, contagious. It's yeah. like you're caught up in the whole thing. It just becomes bigger than life. You can it's laugh fun. at tragedy as long as you're laughing with oh, him. It's so much, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's so much fun. The way he just <laughs> he just pulls you right into the Yeah, so those there again over the years meeting guys like that, Rodney Spencer. Yeah. All kinds of fun, yourself included, for sure. Well, thanks. Well, cool. Let's go get a taco. Oh, come on, man. Thank you, brother. Oh, thank you.